Okay, guys, let's finish Dune. Lady Jessica consumes a poisoned water that sends her into what is best described as a, an, a trip. And she hallucinates where she meets in this hallucination an 80-year-old reverend mother whose name is Romalo. She is there with the Fremen. She is the reverend mother of their bunch. But her powers, as it were, are being transferred to Jessica. During this episode, there is also a transfer of power. And that transfer of power uh, occurs to the baby that Lady Jessica is carrying. Jessica is the Reverend Mother after this process. It's almost her initiation into this role. And her role as Reverend Mother, in my opinion, helps the author not feel the need to, let's say this, because she becomes a Reverend Mother, there's no need to ship Lady Jessica with anyone. There is no need for Jessica to be yoked to Stilgar or any other man of the Fremen or anyone else on Arrakis for that matter. This Reverend Mother position has a bit of a a um, it has a bit of a um, nunnery aspect to it, not in doctrine yet in lifestyle, where these people. These women seem to be single and, and, and fully encapsulate and surround their lives with the beneath Jesuit way, and it becomes their companion. It becomes their lover, as it were. So Paul drinks from this water too. This water is in a poisoned sack that the Fremen present to Jessica. Paul isn't presented with it where he has to drink, but he is always the type of guy who who feels that if one person does it, especially if that person is a powerful person in the group, that it means that there's an open invitation for him to have to do it too. For him, he has to surmount everything that could be a threat or could um, display the highest level of power because he's the deep. Paul and Cheney are a thing. They ship themselves and they are an official couple. They are not married. However, Paul has taken her as his woman volitionally, whereas Hara, who was Jameis's wife, is someone who he has charge of or let's say responsibility for. So there really are no intimate feelings between he and Hera. He and Hera do not share a bed. He and Cheney eventually do. So next we have um, a part in the story where uh, we get more interaction with Baron and the Imperial Guard. Um, the Baron has this exchange with his nephew who he is positioning to be the na baron n a dash baron 
That is what the author has used to define as the person who is next in line for baronship. And this nephew's name is Freya Rutha or Fayed Rotha, F-E-H-D Rotha. And this episode only entails him sending a boy slave to his uncle, which his uncle requested. This is his uncle's quote-unquote tastes. And the uncle wants to have someone answer for why they sent him a blemished slave to his thigh. And at first, upon reading this, I thought, wow, you're having a fit over this slave having a bit a birthmark on his thigh. But I don't think it was about a birthmark. It was about the fact that Fayed had planted a poison needle on his thigh that the Baron was so close to nicking himself and perhaps dying. But because now Hawat is the Baron's mentat, he was able to tip the Baron off that Fayette was attempting to move in on him and that would be the way that he would do it. So he ordered one of his guards to kill the slave boy. And he also ordered Fayette to talk to him and they talked politics and they gave their subliminal threats to each other without saying it. And they um ended up, he, the Baron ended up having Fayette go and slay all of the slave girls that he likes to play around with on a nightly basis as another level of punishment. Fayette and the Baron are not friends. And I don't understand why he wants to relinquish. Well, yes, I do. He wants to put him in line because the Baron has high aspirations. He aspires and fantasizes about becoming the emperor. And I suppose that he's at peace with giving the baronship to his nephew because he wants to be the next emperor. So, Fayed Rotha, even though he's a nephew of the fat and slovenly baron, he does not seem to be fat. They do not describe him as being huge, walking around with suspensors. So the baron has heard about this Mu'adib, who is being coined as this desert prophet. And he has heard about it um, Hawat has heard about it. Um, Halleck has heard about it. The emperor has heard about it. And they chalk it up to the Fremen having one of their fanatical spells. The Fremen are known for being fanatics at times, for having folks rise through the ranks and get the people stirred up. Do you hear nothing else about it? And then they kind of go away. But Mu'adib, Mu'adib is a guy who has a reputation who is reaching the furthest corners of Arrakis and are causing people to stir, but it's not causing them to stir as in believing that it is still Paul being alive. Rather, they stir simply because, you know, the Fremen are some are people that you always have to keep your eye on, but while you keep your eye on them, you discount them because you look down on them. They are the peasant folk of the planet, the people who are counted out before they're ever 
be given a chance. So in the next scene, we have Hawat and the Baron, and they're discussing uh, Saluza Secundus. And Hawat is the Baron's mentat, which means that he is his, not only his lethal assassin, but he is his strategist. He is his brain. Hawat is very skilled in the art of war, and he knows how to maneuver politically and militarily. So he gives Baron the code game on how he is going to be able to uh, bring Arrakis down to its knees. Um, the emperor, whose name is uh, Padishah Shaddam IV, he has a prison planet, and that prison planet is called Saluza Secundus. And this planet is just what I just said. It is where you are sent if you are acting up anywhere in the galaxy. So it doesn't matter what planet you're from. It doesn't matter what species you come from. You are sent to Saluza Secundus, and the entire planet is a prison. Since the Baron salivates after anything that he can get his grubby hands on, he absolutely wants to emulate the Baron in the way that he has created a prison planet. The Baron wants to create that prison planet on Arrakis. But as you know, politically speaking, you have to maneuver in such a way where what you want to do is underneath the speak of what you're actually doing. So he, Hawat, has advised him that what you do is you take your nephew. He has another nephew, the Baron does. His name is Rabin, R-A-B-B-A-N. And Rabin is in charge of um, getting the spice from the dunes and um basically he has to pay tribute to his uncle and his uncle places quotas on him and Hawaii said if you want to if you want to tip the cup over all you have to do is give him a quota that's slightly too high to meet and the people will hate him so much that by the time you revealed to him that he is on his own and that you have left him out there to fend for himself, the people will be so oppressed and so uh, disheartened that they will basically be prisoners similar to those who work on Saluza Secundus. Now, what makes the Baron um, lust after this type of rule is that Seleucia Secundus is a planet that has a harsh environment. The environment is so harsh that six out of 13 born die before they ever reach the age of 12. And if you so happen to be of the seven in that 13 that can live, you are trained and you are trained to be a soldier. And so not only are you a soldier of the environment, or not only do you know how to brave a harsh environment, but you know how to brave a harsh life and Hawat rightly supposes that if you implement that same level of standard to those on the Fremen side who live in a harsh environment who are people of the desert no moisture no water and you are able to turn the turn the oppression up so so high that you will breed a type of people who not only um will become your slave class, but they will 
believe that their um, oppression of living in the desert was training ground. They will be proud of that. And what you do is you send someone who came from the desert, who rose through the ranks, who now has some level of comforts, and you help him be an example, a shining light to a cadre of men, to a platoon of men that he can indoctrinate and make them think that everything that they have done up to that point was a jihad, was a calling, was something that they had to do as a writ of um passage in this life like there were no mistakes you were not accidentally born on a dune you were here and this was your training ground for you to become the elite soldier that you are so then that that elite soldier can be used against the imperial guard the emperor uses those prisoners on Seleucus secundus as infantry as soldiers and this is how we get the sardaukars that's what they call them. Sardaukars are very um, ruthless in their fighting. They are known as madmen willing to sacrifice themselves for things that are very nonsensical. They're, they put themselves in harm's way for uh, reasons that the average Iraqian can't understand. And it makes them so ruthless a foe that when the Duke Leto, when he began to train his men on Caladan. Those men began to rival the skill level of the Sardaukar. And this is why the emperor moved in on Leto and took him out because his military strength was starting to rival his own. And we all know that you have to have power of might in order to be able to oppress people. And therefore, Leto had to go in order to disband that power and not centralize it. The Baron wanted to, wants, wishes, lusts to centralize this power. And Hawat along with him is assisting him to mentally strategize to do that. Now, while Hawat is just so damn helpful to the Baron, the Baron really can't understand what his angle is on it because the Baron is fat. And slovenly as he is, he understands well that Hawat's not helping him for good measure. He's not helping him because he's some kind of, you know, philanthropist. He is helping him because there's something in it for him. And for the life of him, the Baron truly cannot understand what Hawat's angle is on it. But since his plans are so ingenious and make so much sense on logical grounds, the Baron continues to proceed forward and attempts to implement his plan. So, Paul and his mother are, you know, on a never-ending mental struggle. Paul with his prescience, and his mother with, his, with her Bene Gesserit stuff. And Paul struggles with his prescience. Paul and Cheney end up having a son whose name is Leto II. And at this point in the book, at this point in the story, there's a time jump, but the author doesn't give it to you explicitly. He gives it to you via Paul's acid trips. He gives it to you via Paul's mental prescient trips. 
And through this mental pressing trip, Paul is trying to decipher what point in time he is in. So while he's giving you the trip like, oh, me and Chaney are together and we have a son. And his name is Leto the second and Aaliyah, she is too. And he's like, okay, am I here or am I at the point in my jihad where, you know, I'm stabbed? So he wrangles himself down from the prescient trip. And we realize that he actually is at a two-year time jump where Leto has been born to him and Aaliyah has been born to his mother. Jessica and Paul's eyes have taken on the blue on blue of the spice. Although Jessica's eyes are described as having a blue cast, but you can still see the green underneath. So the transition is happening in real time, but they don't have the blue on blue that the Fremen have. The blue on blue is not a genetic trait, which is what I assumed when I first read the book. But as you begin to go through the book, if you choose to read it on your own, you'll notice that the 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 eye color is a direct reflection of your diet. And the melange heavy diet is going to eventually turn your eyes blue in blue those blue on blue eyes also stand as a race distinction a race distinctive if you will those who have the blue on blue eyes are seen by other Iraqians as folks who are letting the spice take over people who have a lower ranking people who are if not Fremen or so closely associated with the Fremen that they're looked at with a little bit of scorn, the melange, it is not only a spice, it is like a narcotic, it is a drug. And it is something that if you only take a couple of dashes of it, you'll be cool. But if you take more than a couple of milligrams of it, it begins to work on you the way that people who are addicted to drugs nowadays are addicted to it. And they put it in the food and they put it in the drinks and all of that. But it does seem to be a very lethal type of a seasoning simply because, and I say seasoning, but uh, spice, because uh, the catalyst to 99.9% .9 of Paul's uh, prescient moments is with the melange. When he has some melange, it always takes him away on a journey mentally where he's seeing things He's trying to parse uh, differentiations between the present, the past, and the future. And, and Paul seems to always be blended between all three of those places at once. At one point, he broke it down to his mother that because Paul had, um, well, am I getting ahead of myself? Perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. I will just continue on where we are in the story. So Paul is at a place now where he is the Mu'adib and he is the chosen one that everybody knows he is. His mom's the chosen one too. However, when you are desert people, you have to live as desert people and they are, but there is one feat that he has yet to do. And that is he has yet to ride the maker a.k.a. the Sha'i Hulud. And the Sha'i Hulud is the worm. 
the mighty worm. And as I said, that it was inferred to Jessica in one way or the next when they hooked up with the Fremen Stilgar and his little ragtag bunch initially, that they ride the damn thing and they absolutely do. That is the way that they traverse the the sands. So Paul, it's his time. Now Paul is 17. So Paul is a few years out from where most Fremen boys are tested with this feat. Most of them tried about 12. So he's 17. So he's late. But at the same time, he has to, let's say, catch himself up to where everyone else who has some level of regard in the tribe is because it is going to solidify his friendship. And just like you know, Paul is going to be able to do that. And not only does he do it, he rides the biggest worm they've ever seen. He rides a worm that's three miles long. And he rides it and he gets on it and he's successful in doing it. Except the method that he uses to get on it is one that the Fremen never do. And that is, he does not allow another Fremen to be able to catch on if he misses. So what the Fremen do is they position themselves so that if the person who is the principal rider, if he so happens to either get swallowed up or he misses, that another person will be positioned where they can easily or easily, quote unquote, where they are able to get on. Paul didn't do that. He made his position where only he could get. It was do or die. Either you get on or you don't. And Stilgar chastised him a bit over that. Chastised, chastised him as far as someone who is in, who is second in command can actually chastise the person who is first in command. So Paul said he knows that what he did was wrong. What he, he felt that he needed to do it his way. Paul is the guy who has got to be not in an arrogant way, not in a way that kind of turns you off, but... If somebody jumps 10 feet, he has to jump 15 because he is the Mu'adib. He is not going to, um, he is not going to subsist within that clan without being the best, the best dueler, the best worm rider, the best of the best. And if there is a test of spirit, he is going to have to go and he's going to have to try that even if he puts his life on the line because he believes in his Mu'adib ship so much. He does not believe that death is going to touch him prior to him being able to accomplish passing any test that's in front of him. So the Shai Hulut or the maker, he seems to be who they, I don't want to say he is their God, but when you hear about hear them reference this name there is a holy reverence that they ascribe to it and the maker or the sandworm they call him the old man of the desert so you can tell that these people respect the worm are they afraid of the worm i guess you have to have a healthy respect to anything that can kill you yet they have found a way to allow to use the worm for their advantages so 
I was curious as to, damn, where is everybody else at? Because we know Stilgar and his little folks are there in the desert and there's Paul and his mom. But where are all these children and, and where's all this, you know, legacy that kinds and them were trying to, you know, uh, reposition the planet for? And they're in the south of the desert. And this is where the women, the children and the elderly live. And Paul is not permitted to go to this place until he rides the maker. When he does successfully ride the maker, he has a bit of a standoff with Stilgar. Again, as far as Stilgar can go because Paul is the head guy. But Paul and Stilgar are almost bickering about where they're going. Stilgar wants to stand in the north. Paul wants to go to the South. Stilgar has a bit of, uh, let's just say he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder to a certain degree because he thinks that since Paul has risen to the ranks that he has risen to, that it's only a matter of time before Paul calls him out in a duel. And the Fremen way is that the only victor, you know, will be will will still be standing. And Paul doesn't want to do that because Paul knows that to waste Stilgar's life water would be a waste. Even though the group really values water, you bring it back to the group. Um, Paul feels like cutting off his right arm is a useless uh, endeavor and that the ways need to change. And he is able to finally get through the Stilgar when he says, you know what? You are people of the desert. You are a person of the desert. And your life water, the life water that me and my mom had to give back to the clan that should have theoretically been more important than you guys swooping in on us and saving us so why did you save our lives why was our lives more important to you than our life water and Stilgar was just kind of not able to say anything because he was kicking that cold game and Paul said so too do I think of you I do not have any aspiration to duel you that is the old way we're gonna do something different now, do you think that when I become the head over all of you guys? When, no, he said, do you think when I become the ruler of Ericus, baby, the entire, the whole damn thing, when I rule over Ericus, that I'm going to have time to be worrying about who did this with the spice and who did that and who got this and who got that? He's like, I'm going to need somebody like you in place to take care of that for me. I can't do it all. And Stilgar, listening to that cold game, realized that, yeah, a new day is coming simply because, A, that made sense, and B, I can't beat Paul. And he said that out of his own mouth, and Paul said it to him. He said, look, you cannot beat me, and you know I'm not boasting. I'm not trying to blow my own head up, but man, you know that if we go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, you're dead, duh. So why even play this game? So Stilgar had to concede, yes, Muadib, you would kill me. And I think I might rather not die or something. So, yeah, let's go ahead and do this your way, the way you talking about. Now, from all intended purposes, the way people are talking, I think that Kynes is, they're painting him dead. But if I know sci-fi the way I do, he might not be dead because the last time that I heard anything out of Kynes, he was in the desert and yes, he was hallucinating and yes, he was dying. But one thing that happened, two things happened. One, the scavengers 
left. They burned out, which meant he wasn't going to die. They, the meal was not ready yet. Two, um, uh, Kynes fell into a, let's say, a bubble. Something happens with the sand in certain places where air becomes trapped underneath. And if you walk atop it, you will fall underneath. And when you fall, inside is cool. Inside is, you know, an atmosphere that's not brutally hot like outside. Kynes fell into this and he was comforted by the fact that he was in it. Now, remember, he's a planetologist and ecology is his thing. So he gave me the impression that he was within the confines of safety. Now, he could have went in there and, and drowned in the sand. I do realize that or suffocated in the sand, but I just don't get the impression that he died. And I mean, the way everybody else thinks that Paul and Jessica are dead when, you know, people are talking about Mu'adib and the mother reverend and all that stuff, for them not to at least entertain the thought that, damn, that kind of sounds like Paul and Jessica Seems to me that I might not be too off track with kinds, possibly not being alive. Excuse me, possibly being alive. I'm going to hold that out. It's still five more books in this series. So if anybody can help turn Ericus into, you know, the rainforest, they kind of might still need kinds because Mu'adib is good. He's spiritual and he can fight and he can do all that shit. But I have not seen the Mu'adib create no damn water or grow nothing green yet. I'm just saying. So, um, Gurney Halleck is a character that comes back into the fray. Um, in another section, probably the section prior to this one, part two, I think I alluded to the the fact that um, he, I said Hawat got into it with Jessica. I don't remember if I said Hawat or, Hall or Halleck, but I believe that it is Halleck. As a matter of fact, I know it's Halleck who has the bitterest feelings toward Jessica. Both of them probably have suspected her. Both of them probably thinks that she betrayed the Duke, but I think Halleck is had the bitterest feelings toward her and i need to make that distinction because of things that are going to happen soon gurney is been um he has been let's say infiltrated within a group of smugglers and he is running the smuggle trade and he and his men are in an ornithopter one day and what happens is they see a um, some disturbance in the sand and it turns out that during Paul's uh, worm ride, he has to jump off early because they spot an ornithopter and that ornithopter has Halleck and Halleck comes down to the ground and he ends up facing off with Paul and Paul kicks that game to him where it's like, damn, you're not going to kill me, Gurney Halleck. And Halleck is like, what the hell? How you know my name? And they have a, a touching moment there between themselves where they, you know, eventually reveal themselves or Paul reveals himself. Yet Paul is that dude. Paul is a, a complete G now. So when Gurney's looking at him, he's looking at him like, damn, you remind me of the Duke, but not your dad, baby. The one before that one, the, the grand Duke, baby. You you skipped one. You went back one. And yeah, you him because that dude was 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 uh, hard. He was he was 
He was that dude. He was a complete G. He was the OG. And you are giving me OG vibes. And yes, um, Duke, your majesty, and all whatever the hell I got to say so that I fall back in your ranks. That's what we about to do right now. I've been waiting to be under a Duke again any damn way. So yeah, let's go ahead and do this. Um, So as I said, Paul changes uh, Stilgar's mind about that. And he is able to present this to the Fremen who are becoming frantic. And frantic in a way where the anticipation of, of Paul's uh, soon headship is, is becoming palpable. is becoming a thing amongst the people to the point where they begin to speak and shout and say things like, come on, basically, let's do this. And he's like, look, I am not going to give you guys, I'm not about to kill my governor, okay? I'm not about to kill my lieutenant. I'm not going to cut my right hand off to give you guys a damn circus. This is what we are about to do. He takes his signet ring off and he puts it on his finger the first time he's ever worn the Duke's ring. And he says, I am Duke Paul of Atreides and I am about to rule this entire planet. And Stilgar is still that dude that y'all need to be looking at the way y'all was looking at him before because I got other stuff to do too. And y'all do not need to be uh, worrying for me to hurry up and replace somebody and kill him because killing him doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You guys have wasted blood over people who were good people to keep around who could have been boosting your ranks. Why are you killing off the best of your folks? No, I am not doing that. So he placates them. And in the process of placating them at the same time, spits that cold game where at the end of that, Jessica is proud because he has become the official leader of these folks irrefutably. And it, nothing is going to change that right now any damn way. So this leads me to Paul and how he gets down. So I said that the, that Paul took some of that water that his mother drank during her little let's change you into a reverend mother ceremony. But now he wants to imbibe it to a degree where it becomes a real problem for him. And he does that and he poisons himself because he drinks more of this sacred water. And he goes into a coma for three weeks and his vitals are barely there. And it scares the hell out of Jessica to the point where she goes and she is she elicits Cheney to come from the south, come back to check on Paul because she knows that Paul loves her and she feels like, damn, maybe, you know what I'm saying, she, he will start feeling mushy and gushy and shit. And so when Cheney comes, she takes some of the poison water, rubs it across his lips, and he wakes up in 2.5 seconds. And I'm like, Jessica, if you are a, a Reverend Mother Bernie Jesserit, did they skip the damn put the poison on the bottom lip day? Was you sick that day, girl? Because you know every damn thing else, but you skipped that day. So I don't understand why Jessica couldn't figure that shit out, but Chaney did. And he woke up and he started to talk to her about, you know, how he saw this and he saw that. And he just started to speak in this monotone. And Paul being who he is, he was prophesying the way he does every damn time he talks really so it turns out that after a while 
which isn't very long, but Paul's, um, the Fremen are attacked. They go ahead and move in for the attack. And by they, I mean the Harkonnens slash the Sardaukers. The Harkonnens and the Sardaukers are hard to interchange at moments in this story. Because sometimes it seems like people are being captured by the Harkonnen, but really it's the Sardaukers. But, you know, the Harkonnens and the Sardaukers seem to again collaborate when it politically you know is advantageous for them but they are different they are distinct and it's hard to sometimes differentiate between the two but the Harkonnens um they attack the Fremens in the south though somehow they are tipped off that you know what it's some people living in the south the south of the desert is thought to be uninhabitable. Shit, the north is uninhabitable too to the, really, to the Harkonnens and the Imperial Guard because they ain't going in the damn desert to, to, to first to fry. And, and and if you don't fry first, you're going to get eaten up by a worm. I mean, nobody's coming in the desert. But the south is like the Antarctica of Ericus. They don't think any life is there. Somehow they learn that life is there and they learn that they can go and they can pillage this this stronghold that they have and they capture Aaliyah his little two-year-old sister who is said to be about four right now so there are time jumps in this when you get to the third half of the book the third act where as far as I can tell at the beginning of that there's a two-year time jump and then somewhere in the fray there begins to be a, around the time of this acquisition of Aaliyah, there's another two-year time jump because she's said to be about four. But Paul's son is killed. And uh, just like when his dad died, Paul puts that on the back burner to mourn, to mourn at a, a more opportune time because he's got politics to play as usual. So they're taking taken hostage via a raid. So at this juncture, we're finally finding out who Princess Irulan is. And if you ever read this book, this is almost like a like you do a, a, a mental sigh. Because every chapter begins with a dirge from the book of Mu'adib by this Princess Irulan. She is a Bene Gesserit, just like his mother, but she's trained in the deep ways of the Bene. I'm like, you know what? If you motherfuckers, if y'all get any deeper in the Bene Gesserit, I mean, seriously, how much deeper do you need to get than damn Jessica and Aaliyah, really? But she's a Bene Gesserit. She is said to be tall, blonde, with green eyes and a face of chiseled beauty, trained in the deepest ways of the Bene Gesserit. She is the daughter of Emperor, the Emperor, who, again, his name is Padishah Shaddam IV. Padishah Shaddam IV has five daughters in total, and she is the oldest. Um, Aaliyah is taken to the Emperor and confronts the Baron. Um, the Emperor brings himself off of his throne and comes to confront the Baron because it's starting to get off the chain on Ericus, and the emperor needs somebody to blame and the baron deserves a lot of blame any damn way so what better way to blow off some steam while they're having their little 
it, it's not even it's not even a a, a tet to tet it's it's a while the baron while the emperor is checking the baron Aaliyah is brought in and Aaliyah is a four-year-old who I'm going to describe now when she was pregnant when she was in her mother's womb remember her mother drank the poisoned water and it gave her that reverend mother power but since she was pregnant with her some of that power leaped into Aaliyah to the point where when Aaliyah was born basically Aaliyah is 35 Aaliyah is a 35-year-old, 4-year-old who will tell your ass everything you need to know. He, she will check your ass. She will drive your ass. And by drive, I mean she will join on you. By join on you, I mean she will go off on you and say everything that she wants to say. When she comes into the room, she tells the Harkonnen, who is uh, Baron, that he's a fat fat guy who's not going to be able to you know do anything that he is saying he is going to be able to do the emperor is telling her that she needs to tell him certain things and she is like i will not be doing that i'm not doing any of that and she's a little four-year-old now they always try to inject a little bit of childhood in there and say okay she speaks with a, a lisp but a slight lisp but other than that she is 35 years old at four she knows things she shouldn't know she says things she shouldn't say. She sits there in that frozen statuesque uh, positioning like a Bene Gesserit and doesn't move anything except maybe twitches a finger. You know, stuff that unnerves the Fremen to the degree that they call her a demon child. They feel like she is a curse and that they should kill her. And Jessica's like, y'all got me messed up. Y'all not gonna kill her. She just was there when I, I should have told you guys I was pregnant. But my thing is, damn, everybody's got all these fucking powers. How does nobody know you're pregnant? But nevertheless, um, so while they are having their little powwow, um, Paul swoops in. Because Paul is that dude. He is the Mu'adib. And now is the opportune time. It's time for Paul to make his final moves on the planet and go ahead and put his damn Atreides flag and become the Duke of the planet and shit. So Paul swoops in and he rescues Aaliyah. Aaliyah, before she is rescued, kills the Baron. And she says, I apologize, Grandpa, but this has to be done or something to that degree. But she does say, Grandpa. And people look at her like, damn, you know, he looks at her like, damn, grandpa. And she stabs him with a poison needle and the poison needle kills you. So the book culminates in Paul being Paul and his Fremen, closest Fremen folks, including Stilgar and Halleck. It culminates with him going back to the house that they moved to when they moved to Arrakis and that was the governor's mansion they lived in this house when everything went down he goes into the house and he suppresses anything that may stand in his way as far as sentimental thoughts about his father and his mother and even his now dead son and as he is in this house he is confronted and not even confronted but it all comes to a head they all face off where the emperor comes in there he doesn't have a throne a throne no he doesn't have a throne he also doesn't have a crown on red hair is messy damn outfit torn on one one sleeve is just completely gone princess 
Princess Eroline is in one piece. She intact and shit. But everybody else looks a damn mess. Hawat is also there. Um, Paul confronts the Reverend Mother. The Reverend Mother is also there. Um, the Emperor has a Bene Gesserit in his his ranks. And it is the same Bene Gesserit Mother who tested Paul at the beginning of this story. Tested for his humanity. Paul passed it. But this woman, who is a reverend mother, she is there. And the way they describe her at this juncture in the book is that she looks like a witch. Skinny, long robe, hood covering her face. When her hood is pulled back, her nose is super long and sharp. Her eyes are very sharp, but her mouth is long and drawn. I mean, she just looks anything. Think of a witch, and that's how she looks. As a matter of fact, they call the Bene Gesserit witches because it's it is a coven of women and so let me continue so he confronts her and he puts her in her place because he understands that his power is going to reign supreme and that she is not going to be able to surmount his abilities and she kind of shrinks back in on herself and she tries to throw a little jab out there that that child needs to die and you know, she's put in her place yet again because, no. Um, so, Hawat, he also distrusted Jessica, Lady Jessica, and thought that she betrayed the Duke. And Paul rose up on him with the full knowledge that Hawat has a poison needle. And he says, you know what? If this is what you think that really happened, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to offer you my life. And he palms up walks up on Hawat and Hawat is so overtaken with grief that he mistakenly um, held this grudge against Lady Jessica all this time that he kills himself he doesn't kill himself but he um, yes he does with the poison needle he had a poison needle for Paul he punctures himself with it because the honor that he lost in believing that Jessica was his enemy was more than he ever wanted to live with. Paul chooses Irulan as his wife. And in choosing that, he also starts to tell Chaney, Chaney, he starts to mack on Chaney and says, you know, um, don't worry about that. I am going to take her as a wife, though. Paul jumps out there and he does challenge in dual fashion, in, in true Fremen fashion. He challenges Fayette Rotha Harkonnen to a duel. Fayette Rotha Harkonnen is the Baron's, he's the Nubaron, he was the Nabaron or Nabaron, and he was a famed dueler who won every match he was ever in. So for the first time, Paul is facing uh, his, his, could be demise in the eyes um paul has this jihad where he knows he is going to die and he knows he's going to be slain but he just doesn't know by who and he thinks that wow this could be my chance because man i don't know if i'm gonna be able to beat this guy this guy got muscles and all the rest of that stuff so he challenges him to a duel and it looks like paul is 
really second guessing himself for the first time ever fighting and shit but he ends up surmounting Fayette Rotha and I think his death was a really cool death and I hope in the movie that they play this the way it actually was because they, he takes a knife and he does an uppercut and jams it up through his jaw right through to the brain like in complete mortal combat finish him fashion that seemed like that was a good seems like that would be good imagery so paul ends up also um um he also ends up confronting a character called finrig who i haven't said much about he is the emperor's best friend basically he is the guy who has known the emperor since he was little and he has been the closest one of the closest people to the emperor and he is very much so a threat to paul however paul is um this is the first time other than with other than with fed rather that paul doesn't know something for real and again paul is on this jihad and he didn't see finrig in the jihad like he hasn't seen finrig in the in the picture at all in any of his hallucinations he's trying to figure out damn why haven't i seen him damn this is how i die isn't it you know and so he starts to think that even he is going to take him out but it turns out that you know fayette ratha um when when propositioned with uh fighting paul to the death he relents he surrenders and he doesn't do it because he sees a kinship in Paul because Paul is the Kwisat Haderach and Fenrig was the Fenrig let's just say this Fenrig is a, a natural eunuch and because of that status he is not able to be to be the Kwisat Haderach however he has Kwisat Haderach abilities so if he wasn't a eunuch, he would likely be the Kwisat Haderach. And he saw that in Paul. And Paul saw that in him. And because of that, Fenrig refused to fight him. Because for one reason or next, they connected to each other mentally. They didn't even say nothing. He was just like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. So, Paul defeats everything. It's a little anticlimactic, a little bit, sort of, kind of like. I mean, they just in like the dining room and Paul just, you know stabs homeboy the other guy kills himself the other guy refuses so you know it's a little just slightly anticlimactic and uh <laughs> so paul starts to dish out his what you want to say prizes slash punishments paul demands all of the emperor's company holdings as emperor which means that all of the money and all of the holdings that he has in every business on Ericus as well as Caladan because, well, let's just say on Ericus. And the emperor is banished to none other than Seleuza Secundus. And Fenrig being his friend and was going any damn way, he is banished there with him. Along for the ride to Secundus is the emperor's four youngest daughters. Gurney Halleck, he becomes the Earl and Director of the Emperor's Business on Caladan. Paul says that um, titles and attendant power will be for every Atreides man except the lowliest troopers. So back on Caladan, they will all have a title. 
except the lowliest ones. Um, the Fremen will receive Stilgar as their governor. Paul allowed Jessica to choose what she wanted. And she said that she chooses Caladan as her prize. She wants to go back to green rain. And she wants to take a break from this Bene Gesserit thing. She's had too fucking much thinking about all this. And she just wants to go back where she, where, where life resides. Cheney accepts her concubinism, which may or may not be a word, I don't care, like a good little slave. Supposedly, as Paul kicks this, you know, Mac level game on her. If you guys haven't seen the Mac, go watch that. Anyway, he that's why I always say Mac, baby, because if you can, if, 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 if somebody can get in your head and talk to you like that, you getting Mac, baby. He Macs on her and tells her, look. The princess will have his name only. No child, no touching or softness of glance or instant of desire. And Chenny is like, if you have to do this, I'll, I'll do this. Before he says that, she's like, if I have to do this, I'll do this. Then he kicks that Mac cold game on her. And then, he, then she says, you say that now. And she looks across the room and looks at this beautiful Bene Gesserit woman. And she's like, okay, you're not going to touch that. Okay, I guess you just see me as some kind of a damn fool. So, my opinion is that Jessica, just when she could have gone out like a... She went back to Caladan because she wanted a break from the Bene Gesserit. And I was like, yes, cool. Finally, Jessica. Finally, you did something that kind of doesn't make me say, ugh. She goes out like a true idiot with the last line of the novel, which says, We, Cheney, we carry the name of concubine. History will call us wives, which is rich coming from her since the Duke never married anybody else. So she was his de facto wife anyway. So she totally has no idea what Cheney is going to have to go through. Jessica never had to rival any other woman. And I think that her saying that was so weak. I just, uh, not in a feminism kind of way, but I just, I don't like that because baby, um, Paul is about to get off the hook which if you know anything about the Dune series, the next book, Messiah, is his fall from grace. And I'm pretty damn sure that all that game he just spit at her, he is probably going to go back on everything he just said. So now I am going to weave in the back stuff. So I'm going to try to do this real quick. The Ecology of Ericus. Um... Pardo Kynes, P-A-R-D-O-T, Kynes, which was Leith Kynes' father. He is the father of the ecology of the planet, and he had this grand vision. One day he saw some Harkonnen trying to overpower some Fremen children, and he ended up rolling on them and killed them. And he didn't kill them so much for the reasons that you and I would do that, because they were picking on some little people. It's because he saw them as trying to take out folks that he needed to position in order to transform this planet into one that's dry, into one that is full of moisture and that teems with green life and water. And he saw that as a threat. And um, his saga is one in which, you know... Um, he was hailed as a reverent figure amongst the Fremen and he gave them all of the, he gave Liet, his son, every ounce of knowledge that he could about ecology and Liet 
took that banner and took it seriously. And he also was honest when his dad said, look, you guys won't realize this for eight, 10 generations. And because of his honesty, the people realized that, you know what, it's okay. We're still going to be seeking after something that's so righteous that it's all right if it doesn't take, you know, if it doesn't happen tomorrow. So that's the ecology in a nutshell of Ericus. The religion of Dune. The religion of Dune is an interesting one because what it did was it took. Now, we all know the world religions. So just imagine the world religions, the main ones. The book indicates the main ones are as uh, Sari, Mayana Christianity, Sazuni Catholicism, Catholicism, Buddh Islamic, and all of those different religions. And all of those different religions at one point got to the point where, you know what, they realized that in order to persist, they were going to have to all come to some kind of universal understanding. And the reason they were going to have to come to a universal understanding or like a universal commandment was because they all needed to come together. And the religion that superseded all of the, the religions that we, we know today is what's called space. And it was kind of funny in the book because it was space caps lock with like three exclamation points at the end. Because not only did you have just planets subsisting within their own uh, ecosystems, but you had the galaxy as a whole. And as the galaxy began to mesh into this one galaxy cluster fuck, they needed to get every, you know, in order to, in order to gain control over people you have to centralize them and and religion is a good way to centralize people and therefore in order to centralize religion everybody needed to think about the same shit the same way so they said that you know what we're gonna have one commandment and that commandment that every religion is going to agree on and they all supposedly quote-unquote did and that was that thou shall not disfigure the soul nobody could agree on everything but everybody could agree you temple with the soul so that's what they did and what they did was they took all the religions and they mushed them all together and put them in one book called the oc bible the, the uh orange catholic bible which does not mean ooh they catholics mm -mm. it's just the way they named that and it accumulated every day just think of every religion in the world we're gonna you know extract the main ones because i'm sorry if i'm touching the nerve but some of y'all worship some abstract stuff you do not get to be one of the main ones the main ones are the main ones for a reason because a lot of them so they mushed them all together into this oc bible in which they consolidated in which everybody for the most part studied now you also had other religion which was the Bene Gesserit. The Bene Gesserit, they, they claimed and fought against being called a religion. They never coined themselves a religion. But the way that they did shit was so religious that, baby, you guys are a religion when you get through talking. It's exclusively women. And the reason why Jessica was in such a position was that she was supposed to have a girl. Because how does the Bene Gesserit line continue? You gotta keep having girls. And what did she do? Went and had a damn boy. So you already done messed up, Jessica. First of all, you already messed up because we told you to have a girl and you chose to have a boy. So she was already positioning herself as almost a Bene Gesserit enemy and they will never like that child that she had. Um, 
So though that's that's how the religion of Dune works. Although there are plenty of precepts that are specific to certain folks, and you're gonna get that anywhere, because the world was actually, let's say, attempted to be centralized on a world status, they wanted to make sure that they were able to get as many people underneath the same umbrella of understanding and belief as they could. Because again, like I said, the, the power hungry, they can't have you thinking all kind of stuff. They have to have you thinking exactly what they want you to think. Not what they think, but what they want you to think. So I already went over the Bene Gesserit motives and purposes. Their, their, their motives were simple to continue their line of witchcraft they were considered to be the sorcerers. In any holy text, you're going to have people who are considered to be outside of the fray of the religious standard. These are the wizards, the witches, those who are doing fantastical things that are outside of the, the, of the order. This is the Bene Gesserit. They're considered witches. They're considered, you know, those who are able. They're very powerful, but they draw on their power for some other stuff. And, and people don't necessarily like that. But they have to respect it because the people have skill that's unmatched it's just they can't refute the power and the skill that these women have so um now i understand why leto did what he did because it's like damn you knew sooner you you had to know when you left caladan you was dead it was because um leto was pressured to go to ericus his family bloodline had subsisted for 22 generations. They had resisted. But the pressure, once Leto was Duke, had gotten to be so much that politically he had to go to Arrakis. And thus this story unfolds and did exactly what it did. So this is the end of Dune. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that I was able to catch you up to the lore because I certainly was caught up to the lore. Now when we go and we look in at the movie, we will feel special or something because we kind of know what's behind stuff. Thank you very much for joining in. You have braved these long episodes, but I think they were worth it to get Dune underneath my belt. And what I hope coming from this book whether I liked it or not, which I will leave up to your curiosity whether I liked this book. But what I hope above all is that I will never allow a classic as big as this to slip underneath my nose and it almost got away from me. I hope that doesn't happen again. And if it should happen like this again, hopefully I can catch it in time to bring it to you and maybe there will be a few stragglers like me who will enjoy being caught up to a classic that whether I liked this book or not I understand why it enjoys the ranking that it does within the um, sci-fi classic ranks so with that I say thank you and I will talk to you on the next episode.